Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. In this episode, I'm joined by Liam Zari, a fourth-year PhD student at Cornell University, and Dr. Eric Palkovacs, who's a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And they were here to talk about their recently published bioscience article, The Evolutionary Consequences of Dams and Other Barriers for Riverine Fishes. It was a great conversation, and so with no further ado, let's go straight to it. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. So today we're going to be talking about um, you know dams and the evolutionary consequences for the fishes that you know uh, live in their midst. Um, so I was hoping you could just tell me a little bit about you know how this article came about. You know uh, what kind of questions you were looking to answer with it. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think the the review really started when Eric and I were sitting in his office when I was doing my master's at UC Santa Cruz. I was working on, or we were working on a project related to uh, water flows and interactions, how water flows and temperatures impact salmon and sturgeon uh, in the Sacramento River. And Eric primarily uh, studies equilibrationary dynamics and rapid evolution. And we sort of started just kicking around ideas about looking at the evolutionary impact of dams. By a strange coincidence, when I started my PhD at Cornell University, my PhD advisor, Alex actually recommended the same thing. So it seemed like a very natural direction. And, and so, yeah, we've been working on it now, gosh, I think three years. And I've been working on dam evolution for about, well, since I did my own PhD, um, which is about, I started that about 20 years ago now and thinking about how dams have caused uh, the evolution of uh, freshwater resident populations of, of alewife in Connecticut. So I've been working on that study system for about 20 years. Okay. And so I, th- I think, you know, most of our listeners will have at least, you know, an updated post-pandemic understanding of the fact that evolution can happen at time rates that are, you know, faster than uh, geologic. Um, but, you know, what kind of, you know, evolutionary effects do you see from a dam? How long does it take? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in our, in our review, which uh, we looked at over 300 studies. Um, we looked at both, you know, natural barriers. So that's going to be these incredibly long geological timescales, as you mentioned. But in terms of the dams, it's usually no more than, than a few hundred years. Some of the oldest dams are these mill dams in, in, in Europe or, or other parts of the world. Okay. So, and you actually begin to see effects on, you know, the, the way that the fish look, behave in that time frame. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we looked at, um, we looked at genetic diversity was a large component of the review, but we also looked at, uh, as you mentioned, sort of trait changes. So migration, behavior, morphology, all those, uh, there's studies showing that they, they can all evolve following, following uh, impoundment. Okay, and I should probably back us up a little bit. Um, can we talk about what kinds of dams we're talking about here? You know, I, I, th- I think, you know, when I think of a dam, I think of an enormous hydroelectric dam. I think of the Hoover Dam. Um, but oftentimes we're talking about considerably smaller structures than that. What, what kinds of, you know, impoundments were, you know, most frequent that you looked at? Yeah, it's a, I think, an, uh, you know, something that we, has, has been known, I think, in the dams literature for a while. Most of the studies on dams, whether it's the ecological effects, or the evolutionary effects, most of the studies are on these massive projects, you know, the Hoover Dam, massive hydroelectric projects. Um, That being said, although those do cause very, very large ecological and evolutionary changes, by far and away, the most common dams are these very small 
dams, the mill dams that we mentioned, small water diversions, or uh, even culverts. So anytime a road and a stream meet, they have to get by each other somehow. <laughs> and so, and so usually a culvert is introduced. And Eric, you know, one of the studies that we look at was this study that Eric worked on, uh, brook trout culverts, um, and you know how that causes uh, some really interesting changes. Right, and the the fact that there are so many culverts out there, um, and very few studies on their effects uh, suggests that really um, there's a lot of room to learn more about the effects of these small dams and culverts, especially. So let's talk a little bit about culverts then, just, you know, since we're on the topic, um, you know, what, what kinds of effects, how do they alter the way that, you know, fish are able to, you know, move across the landscape? There's, there's really two um, types of effects. One is the fragmentation effect, right? So they prevent fish mostly from moving from downstream to upstream. Um, and then that fragments um, that fragments populations. It isolates upstream populations from downstream populations. That tends to reduce genetic variation. It can reduce um, trait variation in those populations. Um, the other is it is a it is a selective force, right? It's a it's a source of um, human driven selection because fish that can pass culverts are a non-random subset of the total fish in the population. They tend to have certain traits um, and then the culverts therefore select for those traits. So those traits include um, certain body shapes that allow them to swim more effectively and pass the culvert as well as behavioral traits um, that sort of give them the motivation to want to pass culverts. Whereas other fish simply don't have the motivation or the body shape to be able to overcome culverts. And then they end up um, basically being uh, sort of isolated below these culverts, whereas these, these more um, mobile fish can move up above the culverts. Just briefly to build on that, um, not only, you know, do the culverts really show this, you know, this impact of, of uh, potential phenotypic change, but also, usually the resident fish populations that are much higher up in the watershed, you know, resident fishes, so they're not migratory, they're not moving around very much. Typically higher in the watershed, there's less habitat. So there's a smaller population size, which leads to lower genetic diversity in the population. And so if you're heavily fragmenting already low genetic diversity population, this can cause uh, high rates of um, inbreeding, which can actually lead to uh, some really uh, extirpation or, or local extinction of, of those populations. So, you know, this is an area that we think probably warrants some more some more investigation. What's the what's the scale that you know you're seeing the the loss of genetic diversity or, or really any other change you know on an evolutionary level, um, you know, in, in these populations? Is it is it dramatic or is are we looking at you know something that you know we detect primarily um, you know through you know genomic sequencing or something? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the way really to get at this is sequencing. Most of the studies that we found, uh, there's, there's a few different methods. The most common method that we found is using a technique which has been around for decades. It's looking at markers called microsatellites. Um, and sort of the main, the main takeaways are uh, taller, uh, taller barriers or ones that are less passable are going to cause more fragmentation, lead to greater... Uh, loss of genetic diversity. If there's uh, less habitat in between barriers, that will lead to um, more rapid loss of genetic diversity. 
um, you know, there's there's sort of a number of different factors that are really going to that are going to impact how quickly these populations decline in genetic diversity. But that being said, I think there are many cases where you don't need to do any sequencing to see the evolutionary effect of these dams. And one case is where we have the formation of freshwater resident populations from a formerly migratory ancestor, right? We put a dam in a watershed that then um, isolates the migratory component of that population from the upstream freshwater resident component. We see the evolution of a whole new um, life history form, usually much smaller in body size. They don't go they don't migrate, right? They stay where they're, they stay put where they are. They reproduce um, in those res, oftentimes in the reservoir. So um, yeah, we do have some more conspicuous examples that don't require uh, any specialized DNA sequencing to detect the change. Okay. So in that case, are we talking about, you know, species like say landlocked salmon? Exactly. Like landlocked alewife, freshwater resident form of uh, steelhead trout is called is rainbow trout, right? And so those are often um, isolated above barriers when when people put uh, put barriers into watersheds. Okay. And since we're talking about, you know, um, you know barriers and, and what happens when, you know, we have those types of uh, landlocked populations, I'm wondering what happens if the dam or, you know, other barrier is removed. And we've talked about that on past shows as well. Um, and, you know, but we've never talked about it from, you know, the genetic angle. Um, what what happens? Yeah, I think it's, it really looks like the jury is still out on that one. I mean, it's highly system specific in terms of mitigating the, the you know, loss of genetic diversity, by far and away, it appears that removing the barrier is going to be more effective than installing a fishway, for example, because fishway or fish ladders can still be very selective in, in terms of the body size or the types of individuals which are passing them. But you know, Eric is, is looking at that with secondary contact of alewife. Yeah, and w one of the things that I think it depends on is how divergent the above barrier population has become relative to the below barrier population. So in cases where we have, you know, a lot of trait differentiation between the above barrier and the below barrier population, um, we may even see, see some uh, partial reproductive isolation between those populations. So you, one would think that normally you bring these populations back together by removing the barrier and they re they merge right seamlessly into one population like they were before. But if trait change has proceeded for hundreds of years in separate evolutionary trajectories, um, what we're seeing is that there can evolve partial reproductive isolation due to things like differences in the, the timing of when the populations spawn. And therefore, we may not see immediate um, fusion back into a single population. We actually see some um, some reproductive isolation. So we're, we're not entirely sure how this process is going to proceed over um, decades, but right now it looks like uh, at least in alewife populations in Connecticut that are um, re uh, uh, sort of brought back together due to fishway construction, uh, we do see some some at least partial reproductive isolation between those populations. And I think it also depends a lot on the species traits as well. So both when a dam is installed or a dam is removed, if the species is already, it's a resident species, it's not moving around very much, much like, you know, some small darter species, um, small minnows, something like that. Uh, 
even if you install a dam, you might not see any loss of genetic diversity because the fish are only moving, you know, they're, they're living out their whole life cycle in a hundred meter reach of stream. If the dam is removed, then you might not really see much change either, which is, you know, stands totally contrary to these highly migratory species, uh, the salmon, the lamprey, the alewife. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, how does this affect you know, sort of the uh, the set of species that are in a, in a given area? Um, you know, obviously you have a, a, if you have selection pressures on, you know, which individuals of a given species are you know capable of navigating a culvert or fishway. Um, I'm assuming that you have even greater divergence between, you know, which species can navigate those types of barriers. So do you end up with, you know, assemblages that are completely different in, you know, different areas of the same stretch of, um, you know, waterway? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the one of the major um, consequences of the formation of reservoirs is sort of this change in habitat that changes the fish community entirely, right? From fish that um, live in sort of a, an open river type habitat to fish that are more adapted to like a pond-like or a lake-like environment. And so that change in the fish community is also a source of selection on, on the fish that live there, right? So um, oftentimes we have the invasion of predators that wouldn't normally exist in a river that can invade say in a, in a more reservoir type environment and so that can itself that those community level changes can themselves produce some of these evolutionary changes that we're talking about so would that be a case like if you had the introduction of say you know a, a really capable you know invasive predator species likely prey species would then have a significant pressure to become quicker and more evasive yeah so one interesting example of that is in, in the morphology literature, which is, or that was, you know, by, by a large margin, most of the papers we found on phenotypic adaptation um, in barriers focused on morphology. And it seems like uh, many, many different species uh, show dramatic morphological shifts, such as deeper body size, uh, wider fin bases, which are all uh, adaptations to to navigating these slack waters as opposed to a more streamlined shape uh, that allow fish to navigate flowing waters. And also the, the deeper bodies and the, the wider fin bases will help in predator avoidance. There, you know, there are a few studies that documented uh, larger uh, spots uh, on, the, on, the, you know, on the fins, which uh, distract predators. Okay, and now I'm going to ask a question that comes with, you know, an implicit plea for forgiveness because um, it's, you know, of course, a completely unfair question, but is this bad? You know, is this type of evolution something that's primarily, you know, uh, of novelty to us or is it something that, you know, is going to make conservation even harder down the road? Is it something we should be, you know, terribly worried about or something that we should, you know, mainly just be studying and kind of learning more about because it's of scientific interest? <laughs> Um, is, is it bad? It depends on what, um, what, what the goals are <laughs> as, as in any, anything. Um, in terms of uh, what evolution allows for is um, oftentimes persistence of populations that would not otherwise be able to persist in the absence of evolution. So in that sense, um, evolution is always helpful, right, in terms of increasing fitness and allowing populations to adapt to new circumstances and therefore persist in altered environments. Um, in that sense, uh, it, it's quite helpful. In the sense of um, should we remove barriers because um, the, they Im impair the functionality of intact watersheds, 
Um, I think the answer there is whenever possible, yes, because there's a lot of consequences of barriers for um, ecological interactions as well as evolutionary processes. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there's many ways in which barrier removals are helpful um, for, for a whole suite of reasons. Um, but the evolution itself may allow these populations to persist long enough in, in an impounded watershed in order for us to get our act together and eventually remove those barriers. It seems to be becoming more and more clear that a lot of these barriers, you know, they're going to be coming down one way or another because people have, especially up here in the Northeast, people have forgotten about them. They've just disappeared into the woods and you know, they filled in with sediment. They're starting to fall down. They, they present a, a hazard to communities downstream. And if there are, you know, also fragmenting fish populations and that's impacting, you know, forage for commercially or, or recreationally important species, or it's impacting biodiversity in the area. It seems like a, a pretty clear yes to, to removing many barriers. There's definitely some that, that are fulfilling a really important purpose that should stay up, but it's very, very case specific. Yeah. Is there a, be is there a better culvert that can be built? You know, the, in, the ones that I'm envisioning in my mind are, you know, a, a round, you know, aluminum tube with a road going over it or something like that. Um, is there a way to do that so that they, you know, have less of an effect on, you know, uh, which species are able to, and which individuals are able to bypass them? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of work going on now in how to design culvert, better culverts and better fishways to, um, try to be less selective and try to present less of a barrier to fish. One of the things for culverts, the real bad culprit, right, are overhanging culverts because fish cannot get up into a tube that's overhanging the stream below. Um, and so culverts that are a continuous um, a path under, under a road, but with, without that overhang are much less of a barrier to fish than those sort of um, old style overhanging culverts, which are really the major problem when it comes to fish passage. And it also seems like a lot of the culverts that are bad for fish are also just bad culverts in general, especially with climate change and increasing sporadic flows. A lot of the culverts that are, that are restricting flows, which impacts the fish that are trying to move up them are also a lot more likely to get blown out during a big, during a big rainstorm. And so moving towards like a, a bridge, uh, a small bridge or something like that, that just gives a lot more area for the river to flow. Um, also, you know, hopefully decreases the amount of work that the, you know, whoever's maintaining the road will have to do. Yeah, you've anticipated my next question, which was the the climate change question. You know, how how do we expect you know the obviously changing things that we're observing now to change even more rapidly or more you know um, significantly uh, you know in the face of a, a climate that's you know hitting us with more severe storms or you know drought conditions, et cetera. Well, reservoir in the West, reservoir capacity is becoming a big um, issue, right? And so, um, reservoir capacity means that. It, in California anyway, we're probably not going to be taking out many of these large dams anytime soon because the reservoir capacity is needed for water supply. And so it really does mean that we've, we should be doing more research on how to make our fish passages less selective, right? So that they are more, um, so that they mimic more the natural selective regime that you'd find in a free flowing river. Um, and so 
the situation here where drought is is a big concern is quite different. And I'll let Liam speak to the situation maybe in the eastern U.S. where increased precipitation may be the major concern. Yeah, all, all I guess I can say about that is that I know that it's that something is happening. Uh, I've spent probably too much time on YouTube uh, looking for epic culvert blowout. Uh, <laughs> um, but but yeah, definitely, you know, culverts, culverts that are going to allow more water to pass just kind of give us more options in the future. So you get better flexibility. So when you have those sort of, you know, um, rare or previously rare events, it doesn't, you know, wash out the entire road and culvert and right okay so uh one thing I'm, I'm wondering now how well studied is this issue um in other areas of the world I, I i gather from the article that most of your uh the articles that you were able to draw on are you know studying north america and i was it was europe also well represented yeah europe was was pretty well represented mostly europe and and north america there's definitely a a major latitudinal bias as you mentioned um, looking across, so in, a, in other parts of the world, the number of dams is actually increasing, which it, you know, in, in North America and in Europe, we've, you know, there aren't that many new dams or hardly any new dams being built, but in other areas which are trying to generate electrical power, like the Amazon, for example, there's many, many dams going in, especially, especially in the last decade. So as these regions are also vastly understudied in terms of their biodiversity. Uh, they're also understudied in terms of the evolutionary impact of, of dams. Right. Um, and so I, I want a last question then. Um, what's next for your research? What kinds of things are you working on now if you're able to talk about it? Um, and, you know, what, what future directions would you like to see, you know, for this type of work as well? Yeah. Um, so this, this project has actually inspired me to look more at at removing the impact of removing barriers uh, and, and whether we see genetic diversity, whether we see a restoration of genetic diversity uh, or whether, whether uh, these impounded levels of gen genetic diversity sort of persist into the future. And so um, we're looking at the, the Hudson River watershed. Um, currently there's uh, a few dams that are removed every year, these small mill dams um, and so I'm looking at a, a species of centrarchid uh, called the redbreast sunfish and looking across a few watersheds in the Hudson, including a few places where dams have been removed to try and understand whether we see a, a pretty rapid recovery of genetic diversity or, or whether this takes a while. Yeah, and in the um, alewife system that I've been working on for about 20 years, we're also looking at... Um, how these populations evolve in secondary contact where we have fishways that now have been uh, placed on dams. So we have anadromous alewife now uh, spawning again, once again, um, for the first time in hundreds of years in lakes where we have had the evolution of these landlocked populations. And so we're tracking what's going to happen through time as those two um, populations come back, two sets of populations come back together. Okay, great. Well, those both sound incredibly interesting, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing more soon. Um, thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time. <laughs>